Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Interview, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter politics, society and culture. I'm Tom Clark, editor of Prospect magazine, and today I'm joined by The Guardian columnist Zoe Williams, who will be talking about the rise of the British shock jock. Right-wing radio heads like the late Rush Limbo slowly softened up America for first Fox News and ultimately Donald Trump. Now, with more of Britain's own propagandising pundits, could the UK's media slip into the same sort of culture wars and would that do the same for political life here? Zoe wrote an essay on the subject in our June issue, which you can read in the magazine or online under the title Rise of the British Shock Jock. Now, Zoe, thanks very much for joining us. It's my pleasure. First of all, let's talk about the American scene in case anyone has been passed by by that. Rush Limbo, who died only this year, having broadcast nationwide since the 1980s. Just give us a flavour of who he was and what he did. So Rush came to prominence in the late 80s. He was kind of a bit of a shambling figure before then, being fired from this, picked up there, fired again. He wasn't, he didn't find his voice, certainly, until the late 80s. And the reason he found his voice was that it was the end, it was simultaneously the end of the fairness doctrine. So there used to be a doctrine in broadcasting that you couldn't say things that were outrageous, because that wasn't, you know, there was a kind of Ofcom-like edict that things should be balanced and broadly neutral politically. And that ended in the Reagan era, Simultaneously, and I think that there were two tech developments which were really important. One was that AM and FM were in this kind of constant war because one of them was much better at broadcasting music. The bandwidth was just better. And the other one was really flailing. So prior to the rise of the shock jock, the one that was less good at broadcasting music had gone from a market share of something like 80% to a market share of 45%. Concomitant with that, they were losing all their advertising. And they didn't really, they couldn't really see a way of kind of clawing that back. Suddenly, Limbaugh really takes the brakes off his views and comes out with these incredibly explosive, you know, misogynist, rabble-rousing, quasi-kind of borderline racist. He didn't actually hit his theme with the race hate until later in his career. But even at the start, he was attacking a lot of these sacred cows, which were broadly, you need to be fair to people and not and not be kind of misogynist or <laughs> racist. Um 
And when as he took the as he took the brakes off that, um, a lot of people he was extremely popular very fast. And in the start, he was as popular with Democrats as he was with Republicans because there was a really prevailing feeling, which was borne out by polling at the time, that kind of liberal um, acceptability had made everything just a bit too polite and boring. And the, and the things that were acceptable to say on broadcast were becoming further and further away from the kind of conversations people would have with each other in bars. So, you know, you had this complete bifurcation between public life and private life. And Limbaugh, in a way, drew back public life into the kind of ribald, um, explosive, unpolitically correct conversation that you might find in, you know, a really dodgy bar. <laughs> mm. I see. So it was, it was a kind of taking them, those kind of, well, they called it political cracks then and, and, and woke now, but he had this kind of rather sort of charming, honey-like voice, didn't he? I mean, that was part of it as well. But you know. Yeah, so, so he was very... I mean, it is amazing when you listen to him just how much the man can talk, you know. He never runs out of steam. He never sounds at all diffident. He's always got an incredibly strong view on everything. He's... It, it, the, the whole... The, the phrase one radio producer used about him was that he takes sacred cows and turns them into two hamburgers and a piece of prime. And that was his, and that was, it was very acute because there was more, it was more than just, he was more than Lawrence Fox, you know, he was more roaming around trying to find kind of lenetic points of difference between liberals and conservatives. He took a real delight in it and he produced something really quite tasty. Um, you know, he, he produced something very magnetic and the other the other advance was it it kind of happened simultaneously with the rise of the mobile phone so people who were driving previously would have felt very distanced from their dj because you you know people at home would do the call-ins and people who were driving would just listen suddenly people could call from their cars and the radio station knew immediately what a big deal that was because they actually did a deal with certain cell phone companies that they could, that the calls would be free because they understood the primacy of driving and the primacy of that p- private space where you could, where you would kind of express yourself without the constraints of your domestic life. So, I mean, that's obviously in some ways, I think as you observe in the piece, it's a bit of a difference with Britain because we haven't got the same amount of driving. But then the next step is when this kind of, this agenda moves onto TV with the rise of Fox News and characters like Tucker Carlson. And people do worry about that in Britain now as well, don't they? Well, we're very worried about it because of GB News. And it's certainly, there almost seems to be a template. Every time somebody announces that, they'll be, that they've been taken on as part of the GB News stable, they say, I'll be taking on some of the sacred cows. I'll be taking on the woke agenda. I'll be taking the conversations that we're not allowed to have. Um, and I think, it, that, I mean, my worry with that is that it's, it's, it's not victimless, you know. They, they talk as though the only victim here is free speech and free speech is quite abstract. So you kind of think, well, whichever side of the fence you're on between, you know, complete let rip, say anything in the defence of free speech or contain yourselves in the interest of manners, is still quite an abstract, abstract concept that doesn't have a victim. But actually... I mean, I was just looking at the survey by the League of Common Sense or the Society of Common Sense. I can't remember what it's called, um, 
When you look at the issues they classify as woke, four out of 10 of them are about trans issues. And all four of those are about trans women. So you're talking about a very small population, actually, who've already been through quite a lot in their personal lives because they've had to transition and come to terms with that and what that means for where they are in society, then being held responsible for 40% of woke culture. And you just think this actually isn't victimless. The war on woke is actually a war on specific people, whether that's trans women or Muslims or women generally or gay men or, you know, it's it's always focused very, very kind of finely and keenly on real people and it pretends that it's not. And I think that's that's what I'm worried about with the rise of GB News and that's what I'm worried about with the kind of breaks are off, gloves are off culture where the, the, the idea that we're gaining something by letting all these unsayable things out of Pandora's box. I think we, we, we don't gain a lot because the, the discussions, the more they're had, get further and further away, the two sides. The polls don't ever, don't ever kind of pull together in the discussion. But we also lose that sense that people, that, you know, victimisation is cruel, um, we lose this, when it becomes a kind of abstract war between the woke and the anti-woke. We forget that the, it's cruel to the people that it's talking about. Yeah, and you, you do wonder whether this quite small population, like whether really you know anything like forty percent of the conversation would be about them if it weren't for these people. I know, and it's like and nobody. And what happens? I think with the acceleration of this very binary frame where you're either woke or anti-woke the people who who consider themselves neither woke nor anti-woke tend to vacate the territory so i try never to talk about trans issues because you get it the, the discussions are so unpleasant the minute you get anywhere near them that it apart from anything else it takes up your whole day but once you have people who consider themselves, um, you know, critical thinkers or moderate thinkers just vacating the territory, then not only have you created a victimhood, you're literally victimising people who've had no say in that victimisation, but you are also, all the people who would habitually defend them, you know, most most, most people I know would have, most, you know, regular feminists would habitually defend somebody they saw being victimised Everybody like that has just vacated the territory. So you've got a kind of terrible victimization without any defense, without any kind of um, seawall. Um, and, I, and, I, and I do worry about that. And I think, it's, I think we don't talk enough about what it means to be cruel to people. You know, it's, it's not abstract. And if you think of, because we're now moving over to this GB News, this startup associated with... Andrew Neil and, and what could possibly happen in Britain, but what's already happened in America was Fox News and the rise of Trump. And there's been a lot of attention on the kind of indulgence of fake news and falsehoods and whatever by Fo- Fox News. Do, do you see it also as being part of this kind of selective bullying thing, really, which is what you're talking about there? Well, I think that there's two things going on, right? There's There's fake news, which is a discrete issue because the kind of 
the, that kind of flood of misinformation and the distrust in authority it creates and the, and the license it creates among the political class for being dishonest themselves is, is, a, is appalling and, and really serious. But it's not actually, it's not, it, it, might, it might bisect with the shock jock culture, but what the shock jock culture does, whether it's true or not, and you know, often it is true. Often they, often the things they say are true things, but they've just been distorted or taken out of context or whatever. You know, there are ways of being false without being fake. But whether it's true or not, what it does is it creates a community of, it creates a community of hardcore fans. And what there was a, there was some really interesting research done just before Trump was elected, which which found that what was it was more important to have a hardcore group of fans who would do anything for you in the kind of post-Eminem age, they're called stans, than it was to have a broad base of of moderate support. And actually, I was thinking about how interesting that was because when Trump got in, um, that, that was, I think, Pew Research that found the stan versus the moderate support to be the de- definitive indicator of how well you were going to do. But it was very like... Corbyn's, I mean, I know everybody laughs at when people like me say Corbyn's success in 2017. Obviously, he still didn't win the election. But he was much more successful than anybody picked up that he would be beforehand. And the reason did mirror, I'm not saying he was in any way like Trump. I'm not saying, I'm not drawing any kind of equivalence between the left and right in terms of what they do to public life. But it did bear out that notion that if you have people who passionately believe in you, then that's a better indicator of your success than a low than you know thirty nine percent saying they don't mind you, and what shock jock radio does is create these communities of passionate support so that people don't have to go straight in with with the conversation and say, you know, I love Trump. Do you love Trump? They can feel each other out and say, Did you hear Rush saying X? And then and build that kind of discursive space in which you're kind of licensed to become more extreme without risking somebody turning around and saying, "Ugh, you you like Trump? You must be a racist." It's a kind of way. It's a kind of way to build a discursive community that that makes a huge amount of that gives a huge amount of liberation to those to those voices because i mean it is it is like chatting in a bar rather than the kind of conventional exactly exactly and there's something about the formality of of it's stating your political allegiance that people really don't like doing especially in america actually they've there's this kind of taboo around religion and politics i think it's a hangover from their civil war our civil war obviously wasn't quite wasn't really about politics but part of that Yeah, these are all a while ago, but I think there is this kind of embedded sense that it's impolite to talk directly about politics. And what a kind of popular shock jock does is create a political space that isn't politics. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, so if we think about this country, I mean, the, the kind of names that are around, I guess, Nigel Farage, borderline Katie Hopkins, because maybe she was a bit too nasty to do the kind of female blokey bit, and maybe Julia Hartley Brewer. These are names that get thrown around nowadays. But you also talk about going right back to James Whale, who I remember from being a kid listening to. Yeah, and, and the James Whale thing was interesting because he, in a way, and I don't want to give him this credit, but I have to, he was ahead of his time. <laughs> I mean, he was. He always says that he was kind of not mimicking, but uh, he kind of says it was an homage in a way to Howard Stern. But he was. He kind of came into that shock jock persona at a time when we were just experimenting with creating like a re- like real liberal norms. You know, it was a kind of it was the Blair government we were talking about, and then Ken Livingstone was always to the left of the government, and we were talking about whether or not, you you know, how to talk about race, how to talk about a bit disability, how to talk about women, how to talk about homosexuality. We were talking about it in quite a searching, quite it was quite a searching creation of new norms of sacred cows and then then James Whale was going it was pulling in completely the opposite direction and he was only ever like a he, he was I mean people who are familiar with the American media landscape would have seen him as a tribute act we saw him as a kind of vaudeville weirdo and he didn't really have have you know I don't I don't think he ever got a huge following and also he of course he fell foul of Ofcom a lot because it's very difficult to do that kind of work in the UK without saying something that's going to get you in trouble and you say he got fined it was for backing Boris Johnson wasn't it it was for yeah and it and it was and it, there's an interesting parallel here with the with newspapers and broadcast because obviously broadcast journalism in the UK is very strictly is very strictly monitored by Ofcom. And so a radio DJ saying vote for Boris Johnson for London mayor, which I think he did in 2008, would be in pretty serious trouble, right? Whereas in America, you can say what you like in broadcast, but in the press, you get in pretty serious trouble for being so openly partisan. Oh, I see. Yeah, and and, and again, like one argument in your piece is that Although sort of Rush Limbaugh or whatever might seem like another world from Britain in terms of the mass media, of course, we do have a tabloid tradition that goes right back to at least when Murdoch got the, the sun and is, is ferocious in its campaigning. 
Well, yeah, and and this is something James O'Brien pointed out that you know we've got absolutely no place to say will or will a kind of burgeoning shock jock culture in the UK, you know, centered on GB News but also on talk radio, will that create our own Trump? Because we've already had our own Trump created in the form of Boris Johnson, and he was not created by the broadcast media; he was created by the tabloids. Um, partly by himself in the tabloids. <laughs> um, so, you know, there, there's, there is something. We sort of have to get our own house in order in terms of the press because I think a lot of that victimization, I'm thinking about specifically about Muslims, kind of Islamophobic content in our media is virulent and has been for a long time. Anti-immigrant content is virulent and has been for a long time. And... The, and they, these things have, bi, have bisected the kind of, let's call it, the, the, the whole swathe of people below the poverty line. Um, so, you know, there was always a massive bifurcation between, between anti-immigrant re- rhetoric and anti-benefits claimant rhetoric. So benefits claimants were often assumed to be immigrants and immigrants were often assumed to be benefits claimants. It was kind of implicit in the piece that those two things were the same. And that has had a very toxic effect on our political culture and our political class. If you look at how much time our Home Secretary, for instance, talks about, spends talking about immigration, removal of illegal immigrants, the treatment of immigrants, the, you know, the windrush bleeding into the behaviour towards EU citizens. We've, we've, we've created our own, you know, really extreme political situations through a written press, not a oral press. Let's just dig for a moment into the kind of craft of the of, of the form here. We'll come we'll come back to the politics in a, in a moment. But you do tell us in the piece that you had your own experience of auditioning for one of these talk shows and uh, gave you some insight into what is involved in the relationship between the caller and the and the host. It's really interesting because when James when James O'Brien. He sort of found his voice post-Brexit because he was the only... He was in a very... What we would consider to be a very right-wing format, you know, like really thundering, intense, creating these kind of very intense emotional connections with callers, except he was giving you know, let's call it the left-wing view, even though a lot of people on the left call him a melt. He was definitely giving the view of kind of decency and, you know, political and reason against these kind of very furious Brexity voices. Um, And I thought, this is, he is, I thought when I first heard him that any one of us could do that, right? Anybody, Anybody who believed in the rule of law could defend the rule of law. Anybody who believed in universal equality between people of all races and genders could defend that on the radio. And I thought, well, I want to give it a shot because they obviously don't have enough. They had James O'Brien, they had Owen Jones like Once in a Blue Moon and they had David Lammy every fourth Sunday. I thought, well, they obviously need another lefty. They Everyone needs more women, surely. So I, they didn't ask me. I, I asked them to audition me for a for a slot, um, and I cannot tell you how difficult this work is. You know, because the so the producer kind of they give you a thing, and the producer pretends to be a caller, and the caller is always, always kind of a, a kind of soft racist, saying, "I don't understand why my daughter can't get a job, whereas this Polish person has a job." And it's really... Was this a fake caller? Yeah, it's a fake caller. So it's a producer pretending to be Helen from Southampton yeah. saying saying something which 
which, you know, if I were Vox Popping, I would never question because I'm there to do the work. I'm there to do the work of finding out what people think. But if you're on the radio, you, you're there to rebut the point or agree with it, depending on what the point is. But the point is always, why has this Polish person got a job in Pret-a-Manger? Can't any English people make a sandwich? And then you're, and then it's unbelievably hard because you have to be, because essentially you have to be speaking to your base. And that's the kind of formula of this. You have to speak to your base in a way that makes them want to stand up and cheer. But they, but you, while at the same time, you don't want to treat the caller with contempt or with anything less than complete courtesy. Because that's not who you are. You know, Nigel Farage might be rude to someone, but I wouldn't want to be rude to someone. So it's really hard to work out, to work up a kind of peroration, which your base will kind of respond to viscerally and emotionally and with joy, while at the same time being kind of polite and discursive. Yeah, and also, I mean, just the hardest thing in the world. And you need, you just need that bit of, you need to be kind of rude but charming at the same time, which is quite hard to... And actually, the really interesting... So they often get politicians on, and politicians also obviously think it's going to be easier than it is. But then if you look at the difference between David Lammy taking that caller who said he wasn't English and Keir Starmer accidentally being put through... Well, they didn't accidentally do it, but somebody from Britain first got through to him and started talking about the kind of giving a very white supremacist kind of analysis of... What do they call it? White re- Muslim replacement or white replacement? Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a theory on the white supremacist wing that white people are just being replaced because non-white people will just procreate faster, and then one day we'll wake up and we'll we'll all we'll all have been replaced. And it's a really poisonous, dangerous subreddit thread um, white supremacist narrative, which anybody who is kind of familiar with that with that stuff would have immediately rebutted and said, that's disgusting, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to talk to white supremacists. I'm not interested in going back to first principles and explaining why the Ku Klux Klan were bad. I just don't want anything to do with you. But because, you know, the, the, the Keir Starmer actually d- did a very neat job of illustrating why politicians are normally bad at this stuff because he didn't, he just wasn't fast enough. The whole shock shock thing is they're very, very fast on their feet. He didn't really piece together what she was saying until afterwards. And he was trying to do it like a hustings. You know, it's like, well, tell me more about what, why you think that, which is just nuts. Whereas you get David Lammy, somebody said to him, he's not English. And he, he went, he gave it both barrels. And it was, if you go back and listen to that, it, it brought tears to your eyes. When somebody does it really well, you just, it, it, it kind of unleashes something in you probably not unlike a kind of you know watching watching your football team win or something it kind of you just think yeah although it's it's, it's different isn't it because he's kind of personally invested in what someone's saying about him whereas Keir Starmer's just going to sound a bit judgy in a in a different way that's exactly that's sort of you're sort of getting to to a truth about politics there aren't you which is that when you're represented which is that the kind of labor stroke left stroke progressive voice is best represented by, you know, this is why coal miners are really good in Parliament and Tristram Hunt was not good in Parliament. It's like if you're going to represent the kind of progressive anti-racist equality wing, 
you do need to sound and be able to sound and be able to quick-wittedly sound as though you're personally invested in that. If you sound like you're just doing it for other people, that's, that's like, that doesn't work. And so, um, like, it's, it's difficult work, but there's some people who can do it. And how worried or not should we really be about this GB news thing? I mean, obviously the whole issue has got new charge at the moment because, you know, the Conservative government's having another look at the BBC and the, the Murdoch press are very kindly having a, a look at the BBC and the way it treated Princess Diana. And we already know that Paul Dacre is the chair, not the chief executive, but the chair of Ofcom, isn't he? And so does this mean that, like, we're going to be looking at a moment potentially equivalent to the fairness doctrine being removed in the 80s that you talk about in the piece in the US? Or do you think actually we're a long way from that? Well, if I may, I want to divide those that question into five parts. <laughs> this is like your night, your your best man speech nightmare. It's like, oh my God, how long is this going to be? No, each one's going to be very short. Firstly, as I said earlier, the fake news thing is a distinct and discreet problem. And I do weirdly trust Andrew Neil. You know, he's a, I hate his politics. I think he's really super rude. I've, you know, he's been, he was, he told me off once on the Daily Politics, which, and I just thought it was outrageous. But he does have a lot of respect for facts. And I think he is actually not a, he's a kind of firewall between a kind of, you know, playful right wing perspective disintegrating into a, the kind of complete Katie Hopkins nonsense where they just make up any old rubbish. Secondly, the, what the, the government's wage war against the BBC, I don't think there's any lengths to, to which, any depths to which they will not stoop. I just think it's quite, it's intellectually disgusting, the case they're making against the BBC on the back of that Martin Bashir interview. And I think that's something that's worth really taking head on and saying, you know, Martin Bashir's methods weren't anything that any of us would recognise as journalism, let alone decent journalism. But this was 25 years ago. And the most important thing about a public service broadcaster is not what happened 25 years ago. It's whether or not it's independent of government. So I think that's kind of, kind of an issue that's really worth ring fencing in order to defend it properly. Thirdly, there is a kind of, it, it, it does, it does come into this, you know, my worry about the war on woke is not that it particularly energises the Conservative base, because I don't think they care. I think the problem with it is that's, that it silences the Labour Party and it silences... I mean, it doesn't actually silence the Greens. The Greens are really good at just saying, well, I am woke, come and get me if you think you're awake enough. But the Labour Party, they just spend their life thinking, oh, we can't say anything about race because it makes us sound too woke. We can't talk about climate change because we'll get into a stupid argument with Harry Cole about whether or not you should block Westminster Bridge if you're part of Extinction Rebellion. We can't talk about gender because what if people think we're too pro-trans? They just tie themselves in knots and they basically voluntarily silence themselves. And I think that's the danger. Um, much more than whipping up the base of very pretty kind of alt-right commentators, I think the danger of the war on woke is that it just completely silences the progressive wing. And I think frankly, that a, a lot of progressives have realised that. And I think they're slowly coming to the realisation that you you can't, you actually do have to pick the fights. You can't say we need to win back social conservatives in order to win. Therefore, we mustn't say anything that's at all 
politically correct. I think a lot of them are realising that you actually do have to say clearly who you are. Because don't forget, this has been a problem plaguing the left since Ed Miliband. Ed Miliband was terrified of sounding too far left. Even though he was elected as leader, I mean, obviously he was never elected as prime minister, but he was chosen as leader because he was the most left of the candidates. And then he managed to terrify himself into never saying anything left wing again. So, so, so that's the kind of left side of it. But, but what about just whether the whole regulatory thing is going to unravel? Because I mean, Sorry, we're listening yeah, to yeah. podcasts I didn't, I didn't now, take don't on we? Paul Dacre. I mean, the, the the problem with the problem with Paul Dacre's chair chairmanship is, you know, the, the, loads of people said when when that was first flagged, he's going to spend a huge amount of his time just doing really in, intricate techie conversations about you know, what, what internet regulation should be and how, how closely it should and how on earth you're supposed to approximate a kind of broadcast regulatory system on the wild west of the internet. And that will take up 90% of his time. He won't have time to ruin the fairness doctrine. But, you know, obviously it's... I would say this is part and parcel of the government's attack on the BBC. There is no natural limit to how how far a kind of new broom will go if they have the sanction of the government in in charge to change the way things are done. And I do think it is worrying. I think probably Dacre is the most worrying of all these of, of, of all these kind of developments. Dacre jointly with the attack on the BBC, these are very significant threats to the impartiality of mainstream broadcast journalism. But at the same time, I think, the, the, you know, the notion of BBC impartiality as part of general Ofcom regulations was never, it was always overstated how much Ofcom was part of the timber of the BBC. The, really, it was their own editorial standards that held them to this kind of quite neutral and sometimes quite groupthinky kind of image. But it, I mean, that's in the end, you come to relatively optimistic conclusion, which is, I mean, uh, you know, sort of however you put it, like TV and the Internet and radio are all kind of merging into each other. And at some point, the Internet's not really very amenable to regulation. But you almost come to a rather uh, almost market. The market will win out here because people don't want enough British people don't want the extremist stuff they want sensible major conversations you're absolutely right it does sound very like the, the it also it sounds like what's that Adam Smith phrase the invisible hand it sounds like I completely believe in the invisible hand of the market in bringing out our best human sides and I know now that you put it like that it sounds a bit ridiculous because the internet when you look at Laura Bates's work on the, the violent misogyny in the internet on the internet and where it intersects with white supremacy and how kind of misogyny, racism, white supremacy and the kind of toxic masculinity narratives feed into each other to create these really, really frighteningly violent online communities which do have their real-life iteration. You know, we've seen, we've seen acts of white supremacist and misogynist terrorism, the like of which I, you, we would never have dreamt in the 90s. And that is generated on the internet, and I do see... And I don't think that, that throwing your hands up and saying the internet is just too large to regulate is going to work. I think we need large kind of supernatural, not supernatural, but kind of... Supernatural. Supernatural, yeah. 
<laughs> Although we might need a bit of supernatural help as well. Yeah, but we do we do need some some kind of serious and searching work on how to regulate these areas of hate speech because they do find their real life iteration and it is really ugly. But separate to that, my my sense is when I look at the kind of creativity of speech radio, I'm amazed by it, you know, that and just the kind of not just not just the kind of general, the general direction, which has partly been driven by podcasts towards really, really honest, emotional, human conversation, but also the kind of personal career journeys of DJs who I might I might have kind of not particularly liked 10 years ago, like Ian Dale or Sheila Fogarty, I never would have really thought about because she was so neutral and kind of cheerful and they've all it's certainly everybody on LBC has been on has been through this kind of incredible trial by fire as they work out how political conversation is interesting and how personal conversation is political and you get amazing radio even since I wrote that piece I listened to more LBC because the the quality and the rigor of the conversation you know when I say rigor I don't mean factual rigor I mean they just really don't stop until they've got to the human being that they're talking to and I think it's I think the appetite for that stuff is huge and I find that certainly the kind of oral space like it it fills me with with kind of hope for what the media can do to create a different sort of community, you know, a community in which people see that listening to each other isn't just like a good, worthy, balanced thing to do. It's actually the only way to stay interested is to really hear each other. We've got a note of hope, and so we're definitely going to grab it and end on that. I hope Zoe and I haven't shocked you too much with our jockery. Thanks for listening to all of you at home. And if you enjoyed the discussion, please do leave us a rating and a review. Thank you, and we'll hope to see you again next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.